Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This weekend marks a special celebration in the church here. It is a festival as we celebrate the Transfiguration of our Lord Sunday. And our text, well, your Old Testament text is actually flexible. Your pastor has the option to choose between one of the two men that you see on the mountain with Jesus in the Transfiguration account. So really, um, that's the, the starting point. The gospel text is Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 9, where you're going to see Elijah and Moses both on the mountain. And so we've got a text about Elijah, and we have a text about Moses. So your pastor can pick 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, or he can go with Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 to 35. For the sake of the podcast this weekend, our church uh, is going with the Second Kings reading, so that's the way we'll go in this as well. And then the epistle is from Second Corinthians chapter three. It's ver- well three and four. It's chapter three, verse twelve and thirteen. Your pastor can choose to include the end of the chapter, verses fourteen to eighteen, or omit those, and then it's verses one to six from chapter four. So a couple of choices here makes a bit of a clunkier uh, reading schedule, but there you have it. So let's go ahead and dig into the Old Testament text. And just to briefly touch on on Exodus 34, which I'm not going to share with you in the show today. Moses, it's the the account of Moses' shining face, where he meets the Lord. And when he comes down from that visit uh, with the Lord, his face is literally shining and it's giving off light and the people are terrified and so Moses has to put a veil over his face as he meets with the people of God and this this ends up going on uh, we don't get an account from scripture if it ever actually stops uh, but Moses will start to wear this veil whenever he I think the way it played out was he he wears the veil and then when he he speaks to the Lord he takes the veil off And when he delivers that message to the people, I think he has the veil off as well. But the rest of the time, the veil is on, if I recall correctly. Anyway, that's going to play into our epistle text and our gospel text. So hang with that one. But we're going to look at 2 Kings chapter 2, which is going to cover the other man that appears in the mountain with Jesus, the prophet Elijah. So 2 Kings 2, 1 to 12. This is divided up in our English. Bibles into four different paragraphs, so we'll take them one at a time. Now, when Yahweh was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for Yahweh has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As Yahweh lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today Yahweh will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. So Elijah is one of two people that the Bible very specifically tells us is taken up into heaven without dying. The other is Enoch, uh, back in Genesis chapter 5, I believe. It's also referenced in, in the book of Hebrews. These two men never died. The Jewish history 
suggests that there were a few others. And Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodox churches also add Mary to that list. Uh, the Assumption of Mary is what they call that. But there's no scriptural evidence for any of that. We know of these two, Elijah, Enoch. And so our account today is going to cover Elijah's ascension into heaven, his being taken up by the Lord himself. We're going to see how that happens here in the text. Now, there's places mentioned, so you can be looking at a map on this one if you'd like to. We're going to start with the idea of being by Jerusalem over in the land of Israel. And so Gilgal is northeast from Jerusalem, probably about 20 miles or so, and it's over near the Jordan River. And so the, the text starts us there. Um, they're, they're in Gilgal, they're leaving from there, they're going to another location. And that's when Elijah says when that where that next location is, and it's Bethel. Bethel is about a dozen miles west of Gilgal. So you've got, well, you've already got a 12-mile journey as we start our text. And we're going to keep tabs on, on that length of journey as we keep going here. And it's a rough estimate. I'm, I'm going off of maps with those little, you know, the key where you can measure. So how close exactly I am, I don't know. But it's a, it's a rough estimate. Now, why... Did God send Elijah from one location to another? I can't say. Also can't say why Elijah is asking Elisha each time to remain behind and not make that trip with him. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I can make a guess, but I don't know. My guess would be that this is actually testing Elisha's faithfulness and pushing Elisha uh, to really to live out the faith that he's going to have as the prophet of the Lord, the major prophet of the Lord for the generation to come. But that, again, just a guess. Take that as you will. So they travel to Bethel. And Elisha says, and, and this is an oath. I mean, this is the formula of an oath. As Yahweh lives and as you yourself live, Elisha binds his word to the life of both Elijah the prophet and God himself. The only way I'm not keeping this word is if you're dead. So it's a strong, again, firm oath that he's taking. He will not leave Elijah's side. Now there's a separation that's going to happen in the text. Let's see, verse 11 later on, that God actually drives a separation between these two men. And at that point, he takes Elijah up. So maybe that's the waiting God is waiting for these two to separate in order to, to take Elijah up by his whirlwind. But again, the text is not that specifically clear for God's intentions here. Verse 3 mentions the sons of the prophets that are in Bethel. And we're going to see more of those. From the sound of the text here, you actually have entire groups of prophets who are living in various parts of Israel. We tend to have this idea that there's only one prophet at a time. And so Elijah is the prophet of God and there is no other. That doesn't appear to be true for a good part of Israel's history. Now, we don't know much about this. The Bible doesn't tend to focus much on this idea. But it seems like in some parts of their history, at least, Israel was filled with prophets to whom the Lord would speak. And they would then in turn speak to God's people 
in that location. Almost like, this is just to make a common parallel for you to see, almost like your pastor in your church today, that the Lord can speak his word through your pastor, through the, the proclamation of the gospel in the sermon, and he can give you his gifts uh, through the sacraments, whether it's absolution as the pastor speaks that word of forgiveness, or the Lord's Supper as the pastor um, provides that that body and blood of Christ given to you for you. Um, pastors are not prophets. I'm, I'm not trying to say that, but just a parallel, hopefully, to, to help you see this. There are times in Israel's history where it does seem like there's only one prophet who's who's involved, and there are entire periods of Israel's history where there are no prophets. For example, the time in between the Old and the New Testament, God goes silent. When there is no prophet, God is not speaking to his people, and that's that's a dark time indeed, if you want to talk about the Dark Ages. How about those 400 years before Christ is born? The prophets, anyway, these sons of the prophets of Bethel, speak to Elisha, so the younger guy here, and tell him, ask him, I guess, but it's more telling, that God is going to be taking his master away. They know. God has revealed this to them, that he's going to take Elijah away today. And Elisha's aware of it. Yes, I know. Keep quiet. Is that, is that avoidance? <laughs> Elisha knows this full well, um, but yet he's clinging to Elijah as much as he can. Really, the next two paragraphs are going to repeat. So let's go ahead and read those together. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for Yahweh has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As Yahweh lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today Yahweh will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for Yahweh has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As Yahweh lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. So again, this is a, a threefold repetition that we see then in the text. They have gone from Gilgal to Bethel. Now they're going from Bethel to Jericho. Jericho is about a mile south of Gilgal on the map. So, I mean, this journey went west and then it went right back east. So, not, not the clearest route. If, if the goal was to get to Jericho, it would have been a lot shorter to have gone straight there. I mean, at the end, if the goal is to get across the Jordan River, it would have been a lot quicker to go right there rather than head west from Gilgal first. So there's something going on here about God as he tries to put this separation in between Elijah and Elisha. And as Elijah again, or Elisha again is clinging, is showing his faithfulness, is showing the firmness of his trust and, and his, his love for his, his brother here. His father, as he will call him. So, you know, if it was 12 miles to get from Gilgal to Bethel, you know, roughly another 12 miles, maybe 13 miles to get down to 
to Jericho. We'll just stay with 12. We're not going to invoke Pythagorean theorem here to, to figure this one out. So we'll just stick with 12. So we're up to 24 miles, uh, and we get the same thing, the repetition, Elijah's request, Elisha's oath, the sons of the prophets, their question, Elisha's response to them, all repeated. And then we go a couple of miles east from Jericho to get to the Jordan River. So maybe we're now at 26, 27 miles of a journey. And we get the repetition again. Elijah's request, Elisha's oath. This time, the sons of the prophets, they're there, but they're silent. It appears that they, I guess, are there to bear witness to what's about to happen, that they will be able to see this event um, for the sake of telling others, I guess, perhaps, maybe. A lot of unknown. <laughs> there's, there's no reason given in verse 7 for why they're there but they're standing by the Jordan River as this event is taking place. Verse 8 will strike you as somewhat familiar. This is not the first time that the waters of the Jordan River have been parted by God for his people. The first time actually goes back to the, the entrance into the promised land by Israel. When would that have been? Maybe 700 years, roughly, give or take here. I, don't, I didn't look up my dates very well on this text, but about 700 years earlier, and another close event. So that was when Israel crossed into the promised land. Another close event to that, though, 40 years earlier, is when Moses parts the Red Sea. And so here's an Elijah and Moses connection for you as we think of the transfiguration. But Elijah is going to take his garment, he rolls it up, and he strikes the water. The study Bible suggests here that this is his rolling up of his garment is going to make it like a rod. I don't know. I hear this more like a towel snapping. Um, if you if you know what that, you know, you roll a towel up so you can throw it out there and whip it back, and he, he smacks the water with it. You're welcome to try smacking water. It's not going to do anything. And this is this is a, the Lord at work through his prophet, doing a miracle in order that, that Elijah and Elisha can walk across. And again, on dry ground, just as it was with the Red Sea, when Moses raised up his staff and parted it, dry ground so that a couple million people could cross. All right, that brings us to our final paragraph on this Old Testament reading from 2 Kings starting at verse 9. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven, and Elisha saw it. And he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. So they've crossed over the Jordan River. Their journey of that day is now completed. It's 26, 27 mile trek. I mean, that's a lot of walking in a day. Uh, assuming they've done it in a day, the time element, I guess, is not given to us. Um, but if you go uh, a normal pace of about three miles an hour, that's nine mile, nine hours worth of walking. That's a good day, a uh, good amount of travel here. 
Elijah, seeing the, the threefold faithfulness of Elisha, offers him a parting blessing, whatever blessing that Elisha wants, which, you know, quite a favorable offer here. And Elisha's request is, is a little hard to interpret, so he asks for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. I take this differently than our study Bible does. The study Bible here suggests that this is connected to the idea of the inheritance, that when a man dies, the inheritance is split among his sons, but that the oldest son gets a double portion of that inheritance. So I guess you think of it this way. If a man has three sons, then his his inheritance to them, his all of his possessions are divided into four parts, with the firstborn son getting two parts, and the second guy and the third one getting one part each. And so the the study Bible makes the argument here that what we're looking at is that Elijah's prophetic spirit from God, his ability to be God's chief prophet, is going to be subdivided amongst all the other prophets in Israel. I mean, look at that. We've already got 50 of them standing at the Jordan, plus the ones that were back at Bethel and the ones back at Jericho, and who knows however many others there are. And that Elisha's request here is that he is then separated out. He's distinguished from the rest of them by receiving a double portion, like a son, like the firstborn son, like the most important. Uh, I guess that's possible. That's really the first I've ever read it that way. Personally, I've read this as the idea that Elisha is asking to be twice the prophet that Elijah was. That whatever he saw Elijah do, that he himself would be able to do, and then some. Now, you could make the case that that is a selfish request. That he's thinking of his own power, but I'm not sure that's the case. If, the, if, if he's really being faithful to what a prophet does, a prophet's task is to serve, not to be served. And so he's asking for twice the servant's heart that Elijah has and that he would be able to speak God's word so richly and so wondrously to his people and be able to perform the miracles that help and aid the people. So that's the way I take the text, but again, it gives you the two options. Elijah either way admits that this is a hard thing that Elisha has asked for. In other words, really, it's not Elijah's to do. This is not something Elijah gets to make a decision on. And so he sets out, he sets out a, essentially, a, I don't even know what to call it, a condition. Essentially, he says, if, if you get to see me go into heaven, then that means God has answered your request, that you get the double portion. If you don't see me go into heaven, then God is rejecting your request, and you don't get to have the double portion. And we know from the text, verses 11 and 12, he sees it. So he gets that double portion. Verse 11, the chariots of fire and the horses of fire separate the two of them apart. The separation's been the point of the text through. Uh, that was the aim to separate them, and then Elijah would be taken up. And so that finally happens. The Lord has to force it um, by his army. This, this language is picked up again in chapter 6, verse 17. There's a, an account with Elisha 
where the one of the servants is so concerned about the army that has been brought against Israel. And Elisha tells him not to be, and then prays that just for a moment that this young man can see everything. That he can see the Lord's army. And suddenly his eyes are open and he sees chariots of fire and horses everywhere. That the Lord was ready to fight for his people. So, an army reference in chapter 6. So we should take it as an army reference here. That this is the Lord's angels doing the physical task that he has given them to do. Except for this time, uh, no death involved. This is just the separation. Almost like the flaming sword that you see back in Genesis chapter 3 when God has kicked his people out of the garden of Eden so they can't take from the tree of life and live forever. He puts a flaming sword at the entrance to the garden. Elijah is not carried up into heaven by the chariot. He's carried up into heaven by a whirlwind. So that's a different picture than we probably normally think of, but that's the way the text describes it. And then we get verse 12, and Elisha sees this happen. He cries out, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. So that, that last part just re refers to the permanence of this. Uh, it's a permanent departure. It's, it's done. Um, Elijah is not coming back from heaven in Elisha's day. It's not going to happen. But what's the, what's, what, is the, what is Elijah saying? What is Elisha saying here in, in verse 12? My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. These words on the surface might strike you as a little odd. Uh, he, I mean, he's crying out, so grief, mourning, my father, my father. And then the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, just an acknowledgement that he's seen God's angel, angels. I, I like the study Bible suggestion on this one. The study Bible here calls this a title. So it's not just Elisha saying something random but that Elisha is attributing to his father, he's attributing to Elijah the prophet, a title. A title that declares simply this, God's word and the faithfulness of his prophets were of far more importance than Israel's military might. So would you rather have a strong army or God's word? Which one is the true strength of God's people? And this title declares that it's his prophet. It's his word. I like that approach, and especially then paired with Elisha's death. 11 chapters later, in chapter 13, verse 14, Elisha dies, and King Joash of Israel will say these exact words over Elisha. So, some things for you to consider. It's not the clearest of texts. For us to understand all the motives, all the intentions behind this, all we can really say is that God took Elijah up. Elijah never died, and that's then going to impact our conversation on the Transfiguration. In our celebration of the Transfiguration this weekend, 
Again, there can be the alternate reading from Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 to 35. It's not hard to see the context here as Moses sees God and he ends up radiating light, very much like Jesus on that mountain of transfiguration. Well, somehow his body is changed to the point where he also radiates light. A little beyond our understanding fully what that means and it looks like, but that is the connection with this Exodus text. So it's in two paragraphs today, so let's look at 29 to 33, and we'll close with 34 to 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that Yahweh had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. So this is trip number two up onto Sinai. You might remember that Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to speak with the Lord. He's there for 40 days and 40 nights. The people of Israel, while he's there, they don't know what's happened to him, so they go to Aaron and try to convince Aaron to make them a, a statue, an idol, a false god that they can now follow, as they would probably want to return to Egypt. And Aaron builds them that golden calf, from Exodus 32. Moses, when coming down the mountain after that has been done, he takes the two tablets of the testimony and he spikes them on the ground and shatters them, breaks them. So he's gone back up on the mountain after that. And he's heard from God again. And having now seen God, although he did not see his face, because man shall not see the face of God and live, as God told him, but because he has seen God's presence, he now shines. That is, his face gives off light. And I say that not just in the scientific term. I mean, I guess technically all of our faces give off light. As the light hits them and reflects off them, that's what people see. No, his face looks kind of like a light bulb. It, it's glowing. It's giving away light for the people to see. And so he doesn't recognize this. He doesn't know that about himself. But when the people see him, they're scared. And you can imagine that, right? I mean, just imagine if, like, for example, your spouse came into the room and their face was lit up. What would you think? They're terrified. And this is something that is common for, I think, angels as well, which is part of why they always say, do not be afraid when they show up to people. Not always, but often. Sometimes they show up to instill fear in the hearts of an unbeliever. So Aaron, even, the high priest of Israel, won't come near his brother Moses. But as Moses calls to them, 
First, Aaron and the leaders do go. So they recognize Moses' voice, probably first of all here. And so they're willing to go to him, and they're willing to hear him. And as he talks with them, the rest of the people recognize that it's safe, it's okay. And so they also approach. And Moses is able to speak to them all that Yahweh has given him on Sinai. It's worth pointing out that nowhere in chapter 32 or 33 does it indicate that Moses has shared everything Yahweh already told him. So this could indeed be everything from Exodus 19 moving forward, the instructions of the Lord that he now shares with the people of God. Ten Commandments, building the tabernacle, establishing the priesthood, and so forth. When Moses finished speaking, he would put a veil over his face. So now aware of what's going on, aware that he is giving off light, radiant in this way, Moses takes up a new practice for the rest of his life, it would seem, that he will cover his face, except for when he speaks. So when he's speaking to the people of God, he will take off the veil so that they recognize the holiness of God who is addressing them. Right? God is speaking through Moses. Moses isn't speaking on his own accord, but he speaks the word of God. So he takes off the veil at that point. He also takes it off whenever he goes to speak with God. That's a final verse that we'll see here in just a minute. Well, I guess now, let's go ahead and just read those. Whenever Moses went in before Yahweh to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So ultimately, here for Moses, this shining face is a symbol to Israel. That they would know that this is the servant of the Lord. That they would know that they should trust his word because his word comes from God. I mean, that's a powerful sign. You talk about some of the other things Moses was able to do. Stick his hand inside his cloak, pull it out its leprous, put it back in, take it out, it's clean. Take a staff, throw it on the ground, it becomes a snake. God gave him the ability to do some miracles in order to show a sign to Pharaoh of who he was and who he spoke for, who he represents. And now this sign is an ongoing reminder for the people of Israel of who Moses is as their leader, but also as the one who speaks for God. This does not, however, uh, prevent the people from rebelling against Moses, which they will do multiple times. There's Korah's rebellion that will happen as he challenges Moses' leadership. There is the attempt in Numbers 14 of the people to stone Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb to death. So it doesn't doesn't prevent the sinful nature from sinning. But it is a sign from God. So Moses will be veiled most of the time, with the exception of when he speaks with the people of God so that they can see his shining face, knowing where the word comes from, and also when he goes to speak with God. 
And this again for Transfiguration Sunday, connecting to Jesus being transfigured as he too transformed in such a way. He tells us he's the light of the world. The book of Revelation there tells us there will be no sun in paradise because God and Jesus will give off light. We don't know in Jesus' earthly ministry that the giving off of light continued. But at least there's that moment on the mountain that Peter, James, and John get to see. That helps convince them that Jesus is the Christ. We move into our epistle text from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to study it all. So 12 and 13 uh, is, is certainly part of the text appointed. Verses 14 to 18 are optional, but we're going to include them. And then chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. So we're just going to run our way through, I guess it's 13 verses together without skipping over the middle part. As we talked about, there's some difficulty in understanding all the things going on in the Old Testament reading, all the more so in this epistle. This epistle is deep, and I don't understand it fully. And I'm not sure if we all can understand this one fully. This is one of those where the more you read God's word, the more you're going to continue to learn and grow in your faith and be encouraged and strengthened. So let's read this one together. Let's be encouraged by what we can take from it today. And if you read it again tomorrow or next year or 10 years from now, it'll, it'll still have something to speak to you. Because this one, again, this one goes quite deep. Some difficult language from Paul and just the way that he talks for us to be able to unpack it. Verses 12 to 13. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Well, this starts out easy enough. What is this hope uh, that Paul's talking about? Well, that takes you back to verses 4 through 6, which get to the idea of, of Jesus himself. So, eh, close my Bible here. Let me flip to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 real quick. Sorry, chapter 3, 4 to 6. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So there's the distinction being made between the letter of the Spirit, the letter of life, sorry, the letter of the law, the letter of the Spirit, um, and this is a distinction that's going to continue in the text. Essentially, it's Old Covenant, New Covenant conversation, that in Jesus Christ we are saved, and now as Jesus saved people, he calls us to carry on that mission to others. So that's the hope that Paul is referring to, your hope that Christ has saved you. And because you have that hope, you, we together are now very bold. I've been reading a a free book, you can download this one for free from Pastor Jonathan Fisk called Talk Them Into It, The Truth About Making Christians. And the first several pages have been pretty challenging, pretty cutting. Uh, it speaks to this idea of boldness, that we have grown soft and that we need to um, speak. That's what we've been given to do. Uh, and so it's been a good read so far. Well, keep you apprised if if, if I continue to think so. But anyway, um, we are to be bold. 
you and I have been given work to do for the sake of our neighbor. It doesn't matter what the outcome of that is in terms of what they do to you and what they do to me. If they don't like me preaching the gospel to them, they might throw me in prison. Okay, I'll preach the gospel to the people there. If they don't like me preaching the gospel to them, they might take my home. Okay, I'll preach the gospel to, well, whoever's there where I end up. If that's a poorer community than where I currently live, if it's a, a homeless shelter, whatever it is, I'll preach the gospel there. If they so despise my preaching the gospel that they choose to kill me, I'm with Christ. This is the kind of boldness that Paul exhibits in his time in the ministry. To live as Christ, to die as gain. We are very bold because we know the better glory. We know the thing that we have in Jesus Christ, and it impacts our life. It guides our life. It is our life. And so we are very bold, not like Moses. There's the reference to, to the old covenant, the old glory that we had in God in the Old Testament that is not not the same as what we see in the New Testament on account of Christ. And that's what this text is going to continue to try and unpack for us, although again, very confusedly. um, This is not the easiest text for us to understand. Who would put a veil over his face? This gets you back to Exodus 34. If your congregation is reading uh, the Exodus 34 account, they, these fit together very nicely, uh, which is probably, honestly, why we went with the Second Corinthians one. Uh, sorry, the, the Second Kings text, because then we get Elijah and we get Moses. Whereas if you go with Exodus 34, primarily you're just seeing Moses in the other two readings. So the veil language, we talked about that a little bit at the introduction to the show. Moses puts a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze... They didn't want to see the Lord. They didn't want to hear the Lord speak. They might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Those last words are such an odd phrase. The outcome of what was being brought to an end. Well, what's being brought to an end? That's the old covenant. And so the outcome of that is, well, death. Really. The, the outcome of the old covenant for us as God's people who've broken that covenant is, is our death. So, again, the Israelites were terrified to look, to behold, to hear from God directly. So that's probably the, I think that's the referent of that outcome uh, that, that we have in mind. So now let's read the paragraph that some churches will have and some won't, uh, verses 14 to 18. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I think if you're reading the Exodus Old Testament reading, you've got to include these verses uh, because of that connection uh, and deepening that connection. Whereas maybe if you're doing the Second Kings reading, 
it's a little easier to skip over this part um, in the text. So their minds were hardened. Their hearts were hardened is how you normally hear the Bible speak of that phrase. But essentially the Israelites were, were blocked from, from faith here because of their ongoing rebellion against God. And it has remained that way. They still read the Old Covenant. The same veil remains. So the veil that stopped them from hearing from God directly, from seeing God in their presence, that veil is still there over their text. And that veil essentially really now is, is faith in Christ. They cannot see the Old Testament. They cannot see the Old Covenant. They can't see it because you can only truly understand it through Jesus. If you don't have Jesus, if you reject Jesus, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament does not make any sense. Because as Christ himself teaches us, the entirety of Scripture, including the Old Testament, points to him. It teaches us about him. So if you miss that, there's still a veil draped over the top of this, this reading. You, you just, you're not going to get it. Because only in Christ is it taken away. That reminds me of the temple curtain when Christ dies, Matthew 27 on the cross, uh, the temple curtain being torn in two from top to bottom, from God to man. Uh, that temple curtain prevented them from seeing the holiness of God, and so does their unbelief. Wherever Moses is read is a reference to the synagogues. Uh, they would read the law. They would read the word of God in their synagogue. The veil still lies over their hearts. Verse 16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. You can now see and you can understand God's word because you have God's word. And Jesus is the word. If you think of John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. The word is God. So we see that connection here. When you have faith in Christ, you can understand God's word much better than when you did not have faith in Christ. Verse 17, the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. This connects us back to verse 6 that I had read earlier of chapter 3, the idea of the, the distinction between the letter of the spirit and the letter of the law, the letter of the law killing, but the letter of the spirit giving life. And here we see that where, where you have Christ, where you have the spirit, you have freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from death, freedom from the devil. And we all with unveiled face. So unlike Moses, again, just like uh, our text started back in verse 12, unlike Moses, we are very bold. We with unveiled face, because we have Jesus, we behold the glory of Yahweh, the glory of the Lord, the glory of Christ. We get to see him. We get to see his promises fulfilled. We get to see his, his wondrous gifts to us. And we are being transformed into the image, the same image, reference to, to Christ himself. We are being made into God's image again. To be transformed uh, is to have your form, how you appear uh, physically, changed. That's trans. So we are being changed from what we are into what we will become. We are being changed from what we are as sinners into children of God, co-heirs with Christ forevermore. 
so then we move into the last paragraph, which is from chapter the beginning of chapter 4. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You can see a few more difficult passages to understand in this paragraph for sure. So having this ministry, again going back to verse 4 of the previous chapter that we, we read before, the ministry of Jesus Christ. We have faith in Christ, and now we are very bold to share that faith in Christ with others. We have this ministry, this task to do by God as a thing of mercy from God. Rather than having his punishment, rather than having his, his vengeance upon us, his wrath upon us, we are invited so graciously, so mercifully into his, his kingdom work to do for him the, the good work of sharing this gospel, glorifying him, pointing others to see him. And so it's because of this ministry that we don't lose heart. In this world, it is easy to lose heart. Depression runs rampant among us. There are probably not many of us who haven't, who haven't at least tasted depression. Like You may not be stuck and mired in an ongoing perpetual depression state, um, although there are some of those, certainly. But I think we've all been there. We've all endured that place. It's easy to lose heart when we look at the world around us, and when we're also so heavily burdened ourselves by trying to keep up with everything going on around us. So why does Paul say we don't lose heart? Because we have this ministry. Because we have work to do. We have a different task than the task that the world around us has. We're not to participate in the rat race. Your goal is not to keep up with the Joneses. Your task is not to have the best career that you can possibly have for yourself, to become as successful as you can possibly be, to amount as much money for yourself as you can. Those things are not the goal of the Christian. There's nothing wrong with having a career you enjoy. There's nothing wrong with having a decent amount of money. None of those things in, in and of themselves are problems. It's the race for those things. It's the the constant focus on those things. That's not who we're made to be. We have a different task. We have a task of being fishers of men, of sharing the gospel of Jesus with others. And why don't we lose hope? <laughs> well, again, it's as Paul said, to live as Christ, to die as Cain. If, if I preach Christ and him crucified, and the world hears it, and they kill me for it, I'm with Christ. And as Lutherans, we have this, this wondrous gift that goes along with this. We don't believe that it's our responsibility to convert another person to, to the faith. 
and we can say it even more strongly, more boldly than that. I can't convert another Christian to the faith, another person to Christianity. I'm not capable. That's the Holy Spirit's job. My job is just, just to share the word, to speak the truth of God, uh, of who Jesus is, of what Jesus has done. Those things, that's what I do. And then the Spirit takes that that good word of his and he works it how he will. And so I don't lose heart because if the word doesn't take root, it's not my fault. I'm simply called to share it. Some people will, will hear it and the spirit will create faith, in which case we rejoice and others will not hear it. And there is no faith. And that is sorrowful. That is sad, but we do not lose heart. So there's a hope here because God has involved us in, in the work of the family. He's made us a part of the family business. Verse 2, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. So we have put our sin behind us. It's not to say I don't still sin and you don't still sin. But we've renounced these things. We regularly confess them. As Luther put it in the first of his 95 theses, the life of the Christian is a life of repentance. Not a moment of it. A life of it. We are constantly in the state of repenting before our Lord and, and saying, you know, I, I don't deserve this gift. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving my sins. Take me, take all of me, forgive me of me, and, and make, make me uh, a servant in your kingdom. We refuse to practice cunning, so we don't use God's word or manipulate God's word to trick people. We are straightforward. We are honest, faithful, truthful. We also don't tamper with God's word. Many do this today in the church. I mean, Paul's probably got a specific reference in his mind in his own day, but we see this all over the place. Um, so many people who, some of them still are Christians. Um, some of them no longer are. But people who claim to be Christian. They distort the word of God. They twist it and they shape it to their own liking so that it says whatever they want it to say. Um, we call it the reversal of fit. They look at a text that is hard to understand and they change that text to fit them. Whereas we look at the text that is hard to understand and we say, how do I need to change so that I fit this text? So we don't change God's word to fit us. We have to change us to fit God's word. We have to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, as Paul says elsewhere. So we see a lot of that. But instead, still verse 2, we're to be open, the open statement of the truth. So by proclaiming the gospel, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. So this is, we're, we're going straight to the heart of the matter. Um, as we speak the truth of God's gospel, we are appealing, we are, we're sending that truth right at their heart. We're seeking to bring them to faith through the Spirit's work again. Um, and conscience also connects to the law. So we speak law and gospel in doing this. We speak the words of God in the sight of God. So with God as our witness, we are doing this, this good work. Verse 3 if our gospel is veiled, so if they don't hear it, if they don't see it, it's veiled to those who are perishing. So that's a simple truth statement right there. Uh, it's a sad one again, but it's a simple truth. 
In their case, verse 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds. Who is the God of this world? It might be a reference to the devil. It could be a reference to whatever idol they have in their own life. You think of the rich young ruler and his wealth and how he couldn't turn aside from it. We have many idols that we have turned into our own gods. Even within the church, even as Christians, we have these idols that we would like to chase after rather than taking up our cross and daily following Christ. So we see this, but in, the, in their case, those who are veiled, those who are perishing, they've been blinded so that they cannot see the light. So we can contrast that to Moses' veil in Exodus chapter 34 as he gave off light. Uh, Jesus is the light of the world. And as blind, they cannot see that. You think of a blind person, they can't see light. They don't have the ability to see it. Verse 5 is important. We proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ. That is such a, a necessary statement for all in the church today to hear. I don't share the gospel for my sake. I don't share the gospel for my benefit, like Elisha speaking to Elijah in the double portion. I don't think he was doing that, that made that request for his benefit, but so that he could share God's word. And so we are to share God's word at, at our own expense. I mean, whatever that means for us in our lives. There are many who proclaim the gospel for their own good, and that's a sad thing. ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So, bye-bye, uh, TV evangelists. Uh, the pastors who think you have to have your multiple private jets of your own to, to do the work of the kingdom. And those guys are in it for themselves. It's not to say a pastor can't have a lot of wealth. Wealth is a tool. How do you use that tool? But that the pastor is not in the work for himself. That any Christian is not in the work for themselves. I don't share the gospel for me. You don't share the gospel for you. We do it out of love for our neighbor, out of care for another person. We are servants, not masters. We're servants, not leaders in that particular sense. We are called to lead people to God's word, but that's a bit different. Verse 6, let light shine out of darkness as a reference back to Genesis 1, verse 3, that God could simply speak and it happens. And so God has shown, just as he created light in the universe, so God has shown his light in our hearts. He has taken our sin, he has taken our death, and he's replaced it with his grace, with his forgiveness with faith in Jesus Christ, who is the glory of God for us. And that brings us finally to our gospel text, which is the force of really the, the festival of the church calendar, the transfiguration. So transfiguration of our Lord Sunday, Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. It's technically two paragraphs, but the second one's just verse 9, so we're just going to take it all in one here. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. 
and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So after six days, what's that a reference to? Well, in chapter 8, Jesus fed the 4,000. The Pharisees demanded a sign, which he refused. He then warned his disciples against the Pharisees uh, of the leaven of the Pharisees. He healed the blind man at Bethsaida. He asked the disciples, who do, you, who do the crowds say that I am? Who do you think that I am? Peter responded, you are the Christ. Then he predicted his death and his resurrection. That's what brings us to the point where we, we hear this after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. So six days after that confession, that prediction of death and resurrection, Jesus takes these three men, why these three, I don't really know. They do appear to be an inner circle for him. There are other moments as well where Peter, James, and John are isolated in the text, um, which perhaps then is why the disciples get so upset about things later on as they're competing over who's the greatest. Jesus seems to favor these three. As you think of the Garden of Gethsemane as they're to pray and watch, uh, those three were taken aside. They were to pray and watch, and they couldn't. They fell asleep. Anyway, they go up a mountain together, the four of them, and when they get to the top, he was transfigured before them. Trans means change and figure, you know, appearance, his shape, his form. So just like we read transformed in the epistle text, Jesus was changed right there before their very eyes. So how was he changed? Verse 3 describes that his clothing becomes radiant, intensely white. So white it's radiant. I mean, radiant means it's actually giving off light. It's shining. This is a depiction that we sometimes get of the angels, right? When they appear, you think of the resurrection account of Jesus and the angel at the tomb. But they're, they're actually shining. They're giving off light. As Moses' face did, right? With the veil in Exodus 34. So Jesus, his clothing is shining as no one on earth could bleach them. Sorry, Tide. Um, as much as you try, you won't be able to get it this white. It would take some faith on their marketing team, but they might be able to pull a commercial off with that. We can get close. This is the best you can get short of, of Jesus. Yeah, they're never going to do that. Anyway, verse 4, we don't get anything actually described of Jesus' physical appearance. Like, this is just his clothing. But again, he was transfigured. does make it sound like it also is a reference to him as well. 
like Moses' face shined, perhaps Jesus' face shined. I don't know. The text doesn't specify that, so we can't say that uh, other than to just try to imagine what this might have looked like. So verse 4, as this is happening, Elijah and Moses appear. Now, for the sake of this text, Elijah represents all the prophets of the Old Testament, and Moses represents the law of the Old Testament. And together, then, you have the law and the prophets, which is how they describe the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Testament because they didn't have a new one. If you don't have a new one, you're not going to call the other thing old. And so they just called it, they either called it the scriptures or they referred to the Old Testament as the law and the prophets. So here, for the sake of the transfiguration and understanding it, that's important. We'll come back to that. But real quick, note that Elijah never died. So it would be easy, in a sense, for Elijah to come back for this moment. Moses died and was buried on Mount Horeb. No, Mount Nebo, sorry, uh, near the end of the book of Deuteronomy. So this is, you know, this, this could well mean that Moses is already raised. It could mean that God has simply given, given him uh, essentially a, an appearance before them uh, while he's not actually raised yet. It could be that crazy time theory idea that God has created time so he exists outside of time. So at the moment of your death, while you are from this perspective on earth, you would think, oh yeah, we're resting with the Lord. In, in his timing, you're already there. You're already in paradise. I don't know. That's a I like science fiction kind of stuff. So that one's that one's intriguing. But we just don't know what happens when we die. So it's hard to really figure out what's going on with Moses here. But Moses is here. And we don't discount that. Not at all. Moses is there. I just don't know how. I don't understand it. Again, Elijah, it's easy because he never died, but Moses did. And yet he's there together the two of them, with Jesus and Peter, James, and John. So I guess we got six guys on this mountaintop now. I'm going to skip over verse 5 and what Peter says, because verse 6 tells us it's irrelevant. Right? Verse 6, he did not know what to say. It's word vomit. You know, Peter's so overwhelmed in the moment, and instead of being, you know, we might say that, Something happens to us and we're speechless. Have you ever noticed the people that say they're speechless end up rambling? That's what he's doing. He's He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know how to respond. And so he's just babbling. And so we'll skip over his babble. And we'll just go here with verse 6. You know what? He's trying to say or do something. And they're terrified. They're afraid. This is an incredible sight, and it's such a, a I don't want to use the word miraculous. It's, it's just such an overwhelming, such an awesome sight, in the true sense of that word. Awesome means worthy of fear, by the way. It truly is awesome to see this wonder of the Lord before them, to see Jesus transfigured, changed, radiant, glowing, shining, and now to see the law and the prophets with him as well. They're terrified. They know that they are in the presence of God. 
And that was a thing of terror. I mean, Isaiah and his call in Isaiah chapter 6, when he sees God, uh, he says, woe is me. He thinks he's going to die. That's the reaction of the people when they see the angels as well. Verse 7, now not only is it Elijah and Moses, but a cloud overshadows them. And this cloud, I mean, you can recall from your Old Testament knowledge, the cloud is a theophany of God. Uh, theophany, theos, Greek for God. Um, epiphanos is a, a revelation, an, an appearance. So a theophany is an appearance of God. When God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, theophany. This is a theophany. It's the cloud. If you remember the cloud of pillar by day that led the Israelites through the wilderness or the cloud that filled the temple, this is God descending on his creation. Here he is, overshadowing them, and a voice comes from the cloud. So God speaks, and he says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Mirrors, chapter 1, verse 11, the baptism of Jesus, where God declared, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We see that same kind of a statement here. This is my son. God's declaration for the disciples to see and to hear. But then the key of the transfiguration is as people wonder what the transfiguration is about. It's those, nasty, those last three words. Listen to him. Suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. That's the point of the transfiguration. Jesus is the Son of God. He is God. Listen to him. Yes, you have the law and the prophets with you. You have the Old Testament scriptures. That's good. Guess what? They point to him. So listen to him. Jesus is everything. He is the source of all truth. He is the word himself. By his word, he upholds the universe. In the former days, Hebrews 1, God spoke to his people of old by the prophets, but now in these latter days, he has spoken to us by his son. Listen to him. Stop rebelling against him. Stop rejecting him. Right? There's a passion prediction before the transfiguration, and then there's another passion prediction after the transfiguration, and you can see the difference in the response. I'm turning back to that here in Mark's gospel to make sure I'm on the right track. I know it's in, in one of the gospels. Is it this one? It's close. There's another account in the middle. Um, but you have the account of Jesus telling his disciples about his death and his resurrection, and Peter rebels. I mean, Peter pushes back against it. He rebukes Jesus. This will never happen to you. God will never let this happen to you. They go up on the mountain for the transfiguration. Listen to him. They come back down the mountain after the transfiguration. He makes the same prediction. Verse 32, they did not understand the saying. They were afraid to ask him. They're starting to get it. They're starting to see it. They're not there yet. But they're starting to. This is relevant for us as well. It's not that the Old Testament should be thrown away, as unfortunately some preachers say. 
the Old Testament points us to Christ. But it's why we focus so much on Christ as we do. Lutherans get made fun of for that sometimes, that we are Christocentric. We center everything around Jesus. Yeah, we do. I mean, if we're forgetting the Father and the Holy Spirit, that's a problem. That's not good. But listen to That's what we do. That's what we're trying to do. And all that we do. Verse 9, lastly here, as they are coming down the mountain, he charges them to tell no one until he's risen from the dead. Why not? Why not tell people what they've just seen? They just saw something incredible. They saw Elijah. They saw Moses. By the way, the Israelites, the Jewish people, are waiting for Elijah to return before their Messiah comes. Right? That's, uh, I think that's Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. I think. They're waiting for him. He was just here. Elijah came, although... Jesus himself would say that John the Baptist is the Elijah who was to come. But for them to go around telling people that they had just seen Elijah, uh, that would make people's minds jump to the Messiah. As would, this is the Son of God. As would, he glowed. He, He literally gave off light as we saw him. God spoke to us in a cloud from above. These are things, these are images, these are conversations that would have had people thinking Jesus is the Messiah. And if they're thinking he's the Messiah, it goes back to chapter 1, verse 38 of Mark's gospel, where Jesus has gone away into isolation to pray by himself. Peter's been looking for him, finally finds him, tells him the crowd is looking for you. Everyone is looking for you. They wanted him to keep healing. And Jesus responds, by saying that he has to go to the other towns. He has to go there and he has to preach because that's why he came. And so it is here. If the people hear this, if the people learn about the transfiguration before it's time for them to hear about it, it's going to be all the harder for him to fulfill his purpose. Already in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the betrayal happens, as Judas betrays Jesus over to death, Peter draws his sword and cuts off a a servant's ear. Malchus. If the crowds think Jesus is the Messiah, if they know about this event, they're going to fight for him all the more. They're going to try to protect him all the more. They're going to be like Peter just before this saying, Lord, this will never happen to you. But this must happen to him in order for his people to be saved, to be forgiven, to have life, to be able to live with him forevermore. This is why he came And so he tells his disciples, until he has risen from the dead, they have to keep this one quiet. Now, obviously, they don't afterwards because Mark is not involved, right? Peter, James, John. And Mark writes this gospel for us through the Spirit's inspiration. But Mark has heard about the transfiguration. They waited, and then they told the good news. (laughs) 